why isn't our party more diverse? And secondarily, what are we going to do about it? I think if we can start having that dialogue and we can have them across the various associate writing spaces that we have, et cetera, um, that, that will be great. First, I wanted to just address the obvious. Why is it important for our party to have equity and diversity? And I, I think there are numerous reasons for it, but I'm going to really kind of focus in on three. The first is going to be because it's fundamentally part of the core principles of the party. Uh, secondarily, it's our responsibility. And third, it's key to the party's viability and sustainability in the future. Uh, first, I want to speak to those core principles. You know we have six in the invitation to this evening. Uh, two of them were highlighted, and one of them was participatory democracy and the other was respect for diversity. While I'm gonna talk about those, I want us to also understand that if you look at our other four core principles, when you talk about issues, for example, of sustainability, uh, ecological wisdom, that all of these issues, nonviolence, they are all directly connected still to equity and to diversity. So it really does weave through all of the principles throughout the party. And I think that's one of the things that's going to benefit us greatly in trying to um, engage people and bring more people into the party as well. We have an awesome foundational space for that to occur. Participatory democracy and respect for diversity. Um, really, when we talk about participatory democracy, I have never understood how people really can't see that you can't have true democracy if the citizenry that you're representing isn't reflected in your party, right? It's not possible for us to truly talk about having true democracy if who we have is not there. We need to make sure that in order to have that, we have to be able to have access and opportunity to engage in the process to being represented you can't really truly show um, respect for a particular group, for example, when we talk about respect for diversity, if they don't have a seat at the table. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that the knowledge and insight and life experiences and perspectives that we bring from our various identity groups, all of that knowledge and information that we bring that is going to lead to a party having better ideas and more inclusion and even from a business perspective, more financial growth, right? Um, when you have a party that is dominated by one type of collective experience, and we could talk later about this idea of what I mean by a collective experience, because clearly we're individuals, right? But there is something about a collective experience. And when you have one party that's dominated by a type of collective experience, then you run the risk of not only ignoring or minimizing important issues that pertain to a variety of other groups, but you also end up running the risk of having those groups who are in that dominant space believing that they know and understand our experiences. And when I'm saying our, in my case, has a black woman, has a racialized person, um, you run the risk of them believing that they can understand our experience 
better than we know our own experience. And that is a dangerous precedent to be set. Andrew Chang, who is, I don't know if you all know Andrew Chang, he's the nationalist news anchor on CBC. He said something just a couple days ago, um, and he said, representation matters, full stop. And so it's clear that if we're really going to adhere to those core principles of participatory democracy and respect for diversity, we have to figure out how to make our party look more like the place that we exist in. And we have to do that in an intentional fashion. It brings me to my second point, which is it's our responsibility to do so. The isms in the world, right? So I'm hoping we understand when I talk about diversity, it's not just about gender and it's not just about ethnicity. It's about religion. It's about ability. It's about sexual orientation. It's about gender identity. It's all these different spaces that we occupy. And when you think about the isms of the world, right? Racism, sexism, ableism, heterosexism, they are counter to all the things that Greens stand for. It's, it's actually fascinating to me because has Greens, if you look at the environment, right? The environment is able to be the way it is because of its diversity. And I'm gonna go back, I'm gonna go to that in a moment, but just putting that kind of visual in our mind. So when you think about these isms and the things that Greens stand for, these isms go against social justice, one of our principles. It goes against nonviolence. It increases violence. It, it goes against ecology because it destroys the ecology, right? So while we didn't create these systems of injustice, we have to actively work to dismantle them. I like to say that we're not Switzerland, and I don't even know if Switzerland's Switzerland, but that idea of neutrality, right? <laughs> that in this work of the isms, of the systemic isms, you can only pick one of two sides. You are either actively helping to dismantle them in an intentional, conscious way, or you are keeping them going, right? Even if you are not doing something you think actively to perpetuate them, if you are not consciously actively helping to dismantle them, you are helping to sustain the system. You don't need to necessarily do big, huge things to help dismantle the system. People need to understand that. There are little things we could do, and on a different day, we could talk about that. But the bottom line has a party is you have to make a decision of what you're going to do. So either you're going to be on the side of helping to dismantle these things, or you're going to help to perpetuate them. And so what that means is from both an individual and a collective level, then, we have to consciously intentionally work towards dismantling those systems. And so what does that then look like? It means critically questioning every aspect of what we do from the people that we actively go to recruit, from our nomination process, from the policies that we create. We have to analyze every aspect of what we do and see how we are perpetuating the systems that be or is what we're doing helping to dismantle those systems? And we have to be willing to make whatever changes are necessary then 
to achieve that goal. Fully well knowing that we likely will not live to see that happen. I don't suspect I will, but we are setting a precedent and sowing the seeds of many people before us and leaving a legacy that this is who the Green Party is and what we're about and it's just a necessity. A quick example of that kind of responsibility, I think you would have to be under a rock to not have noticed the anti-Asian sentiment that has been just spurring up everywhere around BC, around the nation in an incredibly ugly fashion. And my thought when I see these things on a daily basis from both personal anecdotes from friends or as it's nationally advertised, uh, shown on t TV, is where's our response, right? Where is it where I could take the something from the Green Party and share it on my Facebook and say, look at this, boom, we are not okay with this. This is not what we stand for, you know? Where, and that's what I mean about kind of dismantling systems. Being silence is an answer, right? And so we have to think about these things in a very critical way. The third piece is about sustainability. Um, it's really interesting that the National Green Party Leadership Contest, which I listened to, I think it was about a month ago or so, uh, when those that were running spoke. And one of the issues they spoke about is the need to diversify the party, that it was a critical issue and one that needed to be addressed. And if you look, so kind of from a national level, if you look at a local level, uh, the NDP, what they decided to do in terms of actively going after women candidates or candidates who identify as female and making a concerted effort to do that. I want to kind of put us in context about why it's going to be so important for us to do this now for the life of the party uh, and for not only for us to be relevant, viable, and sustainable, is because the demographics are shifting. Our neighbors to the south here is they're gonna become the first massive democracy that's not gonna have a majority group, right? We know that within the next 10 to 15 years, the United States is gonna have a majority minority space. We see it here in Canada, the demographics are showing the same kind of shift, especially in three major cities, one of which of course is Vancouver. So Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver. And one of the things that you see with BC is we're considered one of the most ethnically diverse provinces, right? Um, almost 30% of British Columbians immigrated to BC from another country. We have 45, and this was 2016 census data, so that's going to change in this next year. Almost half of Metro Vancouver are visible minorities, and for census data purposes, visible minorities does not include Indigenous persons. Uh, in addition, when you think about that, by 2031, they expect that persons of European descent or white persons will be the minority in Vancouver. More than half of the population speaks a language other than English has their first language on the mainland. 
And you're seeing upwards of 23 different stats, but 23 to about 25% of visible minorities um, in BC, and you're seeing a continuing increase of that in Canada. There is a wave of diversity that's happening around the world. Um, and if we're not writing that, we're going to be crushed by it. It was um, interesting. I don't know how many of you read about two years ago, there was a piece in the Vancouver Sun by Douglas Todd, who wrote uh, a piece called Why the Greens Don't Attract Ethnic Voters. And in this piece, he talked about how Greens candidates drastically underperform in writings where ethnic groups predominate. And he looked at where we kind of do well and where we don't do well. And he quoted a Main Street research poll that was conducted, uh, it would have been three years ago now, so about 2017, and found that about 21% of British Columbians would be interested and ready to vote for Greens. But support for Greens dropped to 8% among ethnic Chinese in BC, 7% among the South Asians in BC, and 10% among Filipinos, 5% among Koreans. Right? So part of the issue, and we'll be able to get into that, is they summarized that they felt that there was this idea that the Greens were a one-party type of party, that economic development, environmental protection, they're incompatible, and they weren't necessarily addressing the issues that were important to specific groups. Sonia uh, spoke to that in this particular article as well and talked about what we were attempting to do. I wanted to throw on a personal hat with regard to this. I when I was in the States, I was a Democrat. My husband was a Green. And so I want you to understand, my husband was a Green in the United States. And if you all know anything about US politics, you know that means he is a real Green because <laughs> that just doesn't make a lot of sense in the US. Um, and so when we came here, I found myself kind of tied between two spaces. And for me, that was the NDP and the Greens. And one of the things that I was always talking to him about was I said to him, you know, when it comes to the environment, the first group I think of is the Greens. So they kind of have that on lock. Like, you know, like I think about the environment, that's the party that I think about. But I don't know where they stand when it comes to things like housing and when it comes to things like access for people where English is their second language um, or maybe their third, fourth or fifth language or where they, where they stand when it comes to issues of childcare or mass transit. Like when I think about it, it's not something that just comes right off the top of my head. And I think that's the party that would be able to speak to me and address those issues when it comes to racism. And that's not what comes to mind as quickly as when I think environment, I think green. And I told him, you know, the sad part about that is if you look at actually many of the issues, the way some of our policies, that would ring so true to so many people that I know, but they don't know that it's even there. That disconnect is so problematic in so many ways. And it's part of that kind of re-imaging that I think needs to kind of happen in a way. People go, oh, well, it's on our website to read it. Yeah, well, th yeah, that's not gonna work. Um, and so when we talk a little bit later 
about solutions and so forth, we can address that a bit more. But there is a there is a shift that needs to happen, and that shift can't come from the people who you're trying to bring in, right? That responsibility falls on us to put ourselves out there and to actively do things to make that happen. So one of the, uh, one of the issues that I would like to just kind of throw out are some quick ideas of how that might happen. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that Hamish Telford, he's a political scientist out of the University of Fraser Valley, and he said this about the Greens, that they have to become a multicultural party if they're going to break out of Vancouver Island. It's not a party that speaks to immigrants, right? What they do notice is we do tend to speak to the youth. And youth who are maybe second generation or first generation, they do have a space there, so youthful immigrants. And so that's an interesting space. So one of the issues for us to think about is, you know, what groups we're interested in and how we can speak to those groups with the issues that are important to them. And I can speak more about that a little bit later. Um, limits to, we need to think about funding. That's going to be an issue. We also want to make sure that we talk about, and this is a controversial issue, and I'd be happy to talk about it a little bit more, but quotas. And what does that actually look like? And what does that mean? And just to kind of put into perspective, over half the countries of the world use some sort of quota system in various parts of their process. Typically, there are about three main types of quotas that are kind of used today. There's like reserved seats. That's usually more constitutional or legislative, like what you might find in Uganda or the Philippines. There's the legal candidate quotas. Um, again, those can be constitutional or legislative. And then there are political party quotas, which are more voluntary, like you may see in Germany or Norway and Sweden. And these quotas can happen at in various stages of the electoral process. So we have aspirant quotas, so people who are aspiring to think about becoming part of the process, um, nomination lists, short lists, and quotas can happen there. They can happen in the candidate space, or it can happen, again, legislatively, like we're going to reserve a certain amount of seats. And there's things like nested quotas. So I'm like a nested quota, like you get, you know, maybe two for one. I'm, you know, black and a woman, that kind of thing. Um, and quotas, usually when you look at it, really often are addressed via um, persons who identify as women, like trying to get some sort of gender equity balance going. But you do see it with regard to other areas like ethnicity in various places, um, the Turks in Cyprus, Black communities in Colombia, Christians in Iran, the Maori in New Zealand. So there are a variety of different ways to do that. And typically what we're finding is that a lot of strong quota regimes are going for like 20, 30, 40%. So a person doesn't end up being the only one, you know, that you have some sort of critical mass that's happening, 
that's kind of what they tend to do with that. There are all sorts of issues with regard to quotas, and, um, and we could talk a little bit more about that. There are pros and cons to it, of course, but here's my overall thing with the quota. I wasn't a quota person back in my 20s, but I, I am now. And that's because in order to have systemic change, you need to have systemic solution. Individual solutions are not going to help many times to break down a systemic system. You're going to have to think in a systemic way. And what does that look like? And when you have these systems that are so ingrained and were designed to keep the people you're trying to get in out, it's going to require a different way of thinking about how that can be, um, how that can be given. How, as an evidence-based party, then do we uh, when we talk about religion? And so there's some back and forth in the chat boxes, like, well, not all religions are not evidence-based. How does that fit into equity and diversity? And do you think that we push people away that maybe have a, a religious belief that aren't evidence-based? I think that's an excellent question. Um, I'm gonna preface this by saying I'm gonna be 50 in June. So when you've already lived more life than you have left, I don't have time to BS with people anymore. Okay, so I'm just gonna say it that way, that I'm gonna probably be quite blunt about certain things. Um, I have found that I think one of the key issues, problems with the Greens is how they address religion. Um, I think there is not a sense of welcome the way it is for other identity spaces as it is probably for religion. And so if I say to somebody, you know, I am a Christian, which I am, and I'm very active in my church, and I do a lot of these things, there are times where, depending on the audience I've been in, in certain rooms, where I think that would be seen, that, that people would take kind of offense to that. And part of the issue with that is many racialized groups are religious groups. And if you just think about religion just in general, and I'm not... Um, and I'm saying religion, there's spirituality and there's religion. When you think about religion in general, the majority of the world believes in something, you know, in some type of spirituality, some type of religion, the majority of the world does that. There's the minority of the world does not. And when you think about that and you realize that across the space, it's it, spiritual your spiritual self, when you talk about the holistic being, right? The spirit is part of that. You have to speak to that in some way, or you have to find a way to not make people feel bad about that space. And that is something where when you go across, it means, for example, would a green candidate, for example, be willing to go to a temple, a church, a mosque, a synagogue, right? That's where you're going to find a lot of people that would be willing to listen to you. And again, it speaks to a lot of the issues that are important to people of various religious spaces. I don't know a religious space that is not environmentally conscious. I don't know of a religious group that is not interested in equality for all people. I don't know of a religious group that isn't interested in figuring out how we all can get along in a nonviolent way. And so um, when we talk about the science-based evidence for that, 
most scientists are religious or spiritual, right? Like, um, I'm, I'm, I don't know, we got into the space where science and religion, spiritual, and I don't know, well, I kind of know how that happened, but they're not two separate entities, right? I think- Well, that's true most of the time. <laughs> I'm glad I, uh, I can just jump in here if yeah. possible. Um, I've, I've read a lot of, uh, a lot of news headlines over the years about, you know, about very Orthodox Jews and very Orthodox Jewish sects, often known as Haredi Jewish sects, but sometimes, but often also called ultra-Orthodox. Right. And there have been a lot of those rabbis who are, you know, are very prominent members of that community, you know, have tried to, um, have tried you know, I've tried to encourage, you know, you know, I've, I've tried to make, you know, heredity Jewish sects, a, a lot of them separate, you know, you know, from, from most Jewish sects. So it's like, you know, heredity, heredity Jews are kind of like way out there. That's kind of like, you know, like almost very distant, one of the most distant from, you know, among Jewish sects, you know, you know, most of you know, a lot of them found in Israel or the United States, but you know, the influence of that sect within Israeli politics is, you know, is, uh, is very strong. And uh, it's such strong, you know, it's so strong that in some parts of Israel, among them West Jerusalem and, and, and B'nai Brak near Tel Aviv, public buses do not run on the Jewish Sabbath. So, so it's very important character. So I, sorry to interrupt. I, I, I'm just going to, I think, take what you're saying and just expand it a bit into the conversation. I think for any religious or spiritual group, you can find an extreme. So it's not about the party getting caught up in that, right? It's, it's really about making a space where people feel welcome to bring themselves in. And what that looks like for people is going to vary. As a party, you can say, you know, we do not authorize any type of discrimination, this, that, and the other, right? That's not speaking to a specific religion or speaking to a specific spiritual group. But when you're talking about things like religion and spirituality, and you're an this idea of being an evidence-based party, I'm just not sure why those two things are seen as so mutually exclusive, right? And I think we're going to have to figure out a way to be able to go in and share our ideas and our policies and so forth with all groups and us ourselves not discriminate against particular groups of various religious backgrounds because we believe I don't even know what we are believing about that. I don't think that should be um, something that the Green Party does, like they X out a whole group of people. Um, that doesn't make a lot of, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And I think one of the ways that we are going to expand is by encouraging people, no matter what faith backgrounds they're coming from, to come and find a home here, right? Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think that getting off on extreme examples of extreme groups and parties is a good way to think about 
what I think we're talking about with regard to religious and spiritual identities. We have a question from Tara. Her hands up, Tara. Do you want to unmute yourself? Yes, thank you. I'm going to keep my video off. Our bandwidth isn't super where I live. So um, thank you so much, Dr. Gunderson. I really appreciate you doing this. It's been fascinating. Uh, you did very briefly talk about finance and I kind of, it just sort of triggered a thought. So I don't know if I have it fully uh, you know, articulated in my, in my own self yet, but do you think there's some type of um, issue there about socioeconomic status or affluence with the Green Party connecting with um, visible minorities, with newcomers. I just feel that with there is quite a bit of whitewashing that has, you know, occurred with the Green Party overall. And it seems like it's a fairly affluent party in general. And so there could be this disconnect with connecting with newcomers and visible minorities. Yeah, I think that might be possible. Um, it's again one of those things where how we speak to certain issues is going to actually highlight what you're saying there right so if for example we're talking to a diverse group of people and we say something like don't use your car you should if you're going to drive you must use a um, electric vehicle right when the average electric vehicle costs some certain amount of money without even realizing it, we've already highlighted exactly what you're talking about. As opposed to, okay, what about instead, let's really talk about how we are going to deal with mass transportation and make it more accessible, reduce fees for mass transportation, right? And because part of what's happening is that many times people think the environment is it goes above everything else. And so when you have immigrants who come in and they may be coming from say a different place and economically they're, they're looking for jobs and so forth. And they believe that the greens are willing to scrap people's jobs for the environment. And do, do, do you know what I'm saying? Like kind of that um, rhetoric starts coming out. We have to retell that narrative. We have to, speak up the way we've talked about the environment we have to speak up to the issues that are important to immigrants and newcomers and that is about financial uncertainty right that is about um accessibility and so you're right and that that comes down to even things like if we're going to have a green event or we're going to have it in some coffee shop in you know a certain place oh it's a coffee shop but that's a five dollar latte Right. I, I, I don't know if people get what I'm saying. It's like, you know, there from where we hold our events to how we hold our events to how we even speak to people. We don't seem to go out into community. We don't go into these spaces. We seem to stick with the areas that we're comfortable in and in the places that we're comfortable in, which tend to be appear to be more affluent and you're not going to get people who are from not from those neighborhoods coming into those spaces necessarily feeling comfortable, but we don't seem to do the reverse. And part of one of the solutions I think we need very badly is for us to really target the groups that we're interested that we're missing and really think about doing kind of focus groups. Um, you know, asking people, what is their perception of us? What does that look like? What are the things that would make it more likely for you to come and, you know, 
be engaged with us in, in conversation. And I don't know how much of that has been happening. Like we need to make some inroads into going and asking people about what they think instead of us sitting here trying to guess what it is. But I think you're right. I think the party has an image that they are for people who can afford to go to Whole Foods, people who can afford just, you know, um, organic stuff, people who can afford to do certain things that the average person, mistakenly or not, can't do, right? We somehow have got to show just, we're just like regular people, you know, and I don't make a ton of money and I am struggling with the same financial issues you are. Like somehow we do have to figure out how to make that look different. Thank, thank you. You actually, that was really, I do appreciate that. I've, I had struggled with that in the last federal election. So, you know, that concept of encouraging people to buy an electric car, it always really bothered me because those, yeah, started about 70 grand. So, uh, anyways, yes, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Uh, we have another question, um, very practical. Can you provide a top three list of practical things we as a provincial party can do to be more inclusive? What would be your top three that we I'm gonna save some of that for the end, but we will do it now, yeah. Um, <clears throat> get active within your groups your associations right and have an honest conversation about who is missing and when i mean an honest conversation i don't mean oh you know we've tried and people have come in you know we've done all this stuff. i mean really sit down and go why is it that everybody around this table is white what yeah. why is it that everybody around this table is you know a man or you know everybody around this table is heterosexual like an honest conversation that doesn't require people to start getting defensive right so and and then when we're having the conversation now we're not going to default into getting defensive and talk about all the things we did and wish we did and have done but how then now are we going to diversify this mm -hmm. from our nomination process to support who's missing i mean honestly some in some of your areas some people already know who's going to be running like how how did you all figure that out already do you know what i mean like there are people who oh i think that person would be good and they oh yeah we need to go after how did you how did you decide that already and then we wonder why we keep looking this kind of the same way and i don't know if people have had an honest conversation about that like turn off all recording devices you know um and really ask yourself that tough question and then i think we need to understand what our biases are and how they're impacting what we're doing what are the biases you know this is this person not green enough like what does that look like because even if we do bring in people who may look who are missing right there's no guarantee right that we're actually going to vote for them right so what is it that's happening that is stopping us what is that connection what is missing and we need to understand what our biases are and that's sometimes individual work that needs to happen that 
I know you're asking me about a wide, you know, the wide association, but that wide association is comprised of individuals who I don't know, honestly, if they have really sat down with themselves and asked themselves the questions that I'm saying to you right now. And I will be very honest that when, like in California, for example, some of the toughest people to work with when it comes to racism and issues are good white liberals. I have usually an easier time dealing with some racist people from the South. And one thing I would suggest is we read Robin D'Angelo's White Fragility. If you're a woman, there's a whole section on white women tears. Like, so I think, and I'm not saying this, I don't want to say this in a way that I hope if your mind's like, oh, this, what I'm saying is we're all part of this system. There's no way you're born into this world and not part of this system. We all have our biases, whether it's on religion, whether it's dealing with sexual orientation, gender identity, we all have something that we're biased about. And if you can't get a handle on what that is for you, there's no way that that doesn't impact the conversations you have, the efforts you're gonna to make to go out and try to meet people, the policies that you're gonna create, there's no way none of that can be influenced. And that is scientific and that is based evidence-based. What I'm saying about the biases and all of that, right? Um, practically speaking, that focus group issue I was talking about, we need to kind of get an idea of what that looks like. You can do research and find out the issues that are important to specific groups. So we know, for example, that with specific newcomers and um, immigrant persons, that issues of housing affordability, issues of mass transit, issues of access due to language, that these are, and BC here, these are some key issues that need to be responded to, right? So we need to figure out, we have answers for that, here's the issue, what's missing here? How do we make that happen? And that's gonna require, you know, talking to people who are different and finding out what, what is it that we need to be able to get our message across. Um, so start out, you all need to have, after this, people don't need to hang up and then just be like, oh, okay, well, that was interesting or I'm pissed off because she didn't tell me what I wanted to know and da da da. You need to be okay. Let's get together. What time are we meeting next week to start having the conversation? And who's going to be there? And what's going on? That's the, because what you're asking is you don't, I'm not going to give you a checkbox because it's like, oh, if we do this, this, and this, oh, we're good. You're talking about a long haul process and you need to, you need to think of it that way. So you need to create a systemic, um, a plan, right? That takes you across months and piece by piece, short-term and long-term strategies. Because you figure out your bias isn't going to happen in a day. So that needs to happen as a parallel process with what you all are doing as an organization in each of your associations, right? So you have to do, it, it's going to really take um, starting off with that conversation that needs to be had. And I don't know if that's the answer you wanted to hear, but that's the work that has to be done. You honestly could Google and probably find a checklist of what you could do. But I'm telling you a lot of times that it's not like we're talking about something that wasn't talked about 20 years ago in this party or 30 years ago in this party. 
or 40 years ago in this party. So if you don't want to keep talking about it another 30 years from now, that's the foundational work that has to be done first. Yep. You know, and I think of, you know, you know, it's also. Sorry, um, I'm just going down the list of, of uh, questions here and, and, and um, I know the one speaker that was just about to speak had uh, already asked a question. So I'm trying to just make it fair for uh, everybody to get a question on. Rob Hainer, I know you had your hand up a while ago. Would you like to ask your question now? Oh yeah, um, actually you've spoken to a, a bit of it, Lisa, but uh, you know, anyone looking at my, my image will see that I am the prototypical middle-aged white guy, you know, bathed in privilege. What can I do to actually help move this conversation forward? Like, how do I get, how do I operate in, a, in an effective way that is necessarily going to be welcoming when I am effectively the very face of the mainstream privileged people? Um, you are key <laughs> because it's, it's kind of like you hold the power and the privilege. And so that means you're key to having the conversation. When it, racism doesn't start when I walk into a room, right? If you have a group of white persons in a room, race is there because they are a, a, a race. And they need to have a conversation about that and how they're going to use their power and privilege and what that means. When you look at sexism, sexism doesn't start when women walk into a room. If there's a group of men, people identify as male sitting in a room, they need to have a conversation about how their male privilege and power, how are they going to use that to help dismantle sexism, right? Because that's, and it's an important conversation because when somebody who identifies as a woman walks into that space, it changes the dynamic. You are able to have more of an honest conversation in a room full of men. There, when I'm with my sister friends, there are things that we say as black women that I would never say in a, in a, in a meeting like this, right? There's aspects of, there, there's perspectives and things. And so you hold the power and privilege and you're the ones that are going to have to, that's where most of the pushback is going to come. So let's just say, for example, the Greens decided to do something where they run just only women. I'm not saying to do that. I'm just using this as an example, right? The pushback you're going to get is, well, what about the men? The men are going to be like, what about us? You know, versus in a group of men, a man saying, you know what? We already are 60% male, so this makes sense. What can we do then to support this female candidate and get, and, and get this going? Because we know her voice is critical for us to be able to be a participatory democracy. It's critical for us to move forward. Unless we assume that as a man, I understand what she's thinking about as a woman, and then I can speak for her, which is what's been happening, right? And that's what I mean about having these critical conversations. You're the absolute perfect person who needs to sit with other people who are afraid to say what they're thinking because they don't want to be called racist or sexist or homophobic or Islamophobic or this or that or the other, right? It's you, you are the power and privilege keeper. So what we all hold power and we all hold privilege in different ways. And what I try to tell my sons who I'm raising has black men that they have a power being male 
how are they going to use that power and how are they going to use that privilege to help dismantle this system of sexism? You all need to identify what your powers are and what are the privileges that come with that. As a Christian woman, I have power and privilege in this society. So it is up to me to talk to my Christian brothers and sisters against Islamophobia, against anti-Semitism, because we hold that power and privilege. We have to deal with that, right? I don't need to, when somebody asks me, how do I help you with racism? It's like, you need to talk to your people because that's where it's coming from. Asian people right now, and I'm saying that broadly because nobody's identifying, they're just assuming everybody who looks a certain way is, for example, Chinese, they're not, they're not the ones pushing themselves out the door when they're trying to buy something, right? Those are anti, those are non-Asian people doing that. Well, what are we saying about that? So I, I'm kind of hoping that answer, I'm saying you need to have some conversations with people who look like you about why are we hesitant? Why are we defensive? Why are we getting up in arms about changing, adding into the party, which means it's gonna look different. Why are we uncomfortable with that? That's the conversation, a real conversation that needs to be had. And that can't be facilitated by somebody who looks like me. Um, we're at a few minutes to six. Uh, we have a few more questions, but we only have time for one. So uh, Nazian, sorry if I pronounced that wrong. Do you wanna ask the last question? Thank you, I'm just gonna lower my hand. Nazanin. Um, Thank you, um, Lisa, for your conversation. Like I just looked at the, the, the faces and I was like, oh, there is one woman of color who's like visibly a minority. And I was like, oh, that's also the person who's gonna talk about equity, of course. Um, like this is not, this is so typical. Like if you're a person of color, like you just notice it right away that um, like I was very involved in labor and the only people that I used to see in podium on um, union conventions who were people of color were, was the equity seeking groups. And it's just so disheartening actually, like I'm laughing, it's funny, but it's also so disheartening. Um, so uh, thank you for bringing up that a lot of the conversation that needs to be happening is actually when people who these conversations are about are not present. So for example, as an Iranian person, um, we also have a lot of anti-black sentiments that was rooted in Portuguese, slavery trade, slave trade. Um, and when we're having this conversation, I'm not having this conversation with my friends and family when there is a black person involved, God knows. Like, I, this is not the time. Um, I have those conversations when they're not alone because then they're not present because it's just, people want to process their feelings and a lot of shit comes out when we process our feelings about our prejudices. And it's very hurtful. Um, the same way if someone has any homophobic like ideas, you don't want a gay person to process their feelings. It's just a lot of hurtful things come up unless they volunteer. Um, but what I wanted to see if you can speak to is, you know, like we attract all minorities and all sorts of rainbow diversity. It's, it becomes very fast about how to sustain, how to uh, actually keep people who were involved. And I'm speaking from an experience of, 
I'm a person who tries to stick my head into every place that I can. And I, I'm at a place that I've been jaded enough to be disappointed easily and I leave. Um, it's not because I'm not involved. It's not because I'm unaware. It's not because the onus that has been put on me, I don't deliver. It's because there are certain things that I hear over and over that gets disappointing. Um, so I want to kind of like move the conversation also a little bit. So you attract all these people, you attract newcomers, you attract people who are ESL and have all sorts of backgrounds that are just really, really amazingly diverse. Then what? What are some of the things that as a party, the Green Party can do and that we can do to actually be able to make this sustainable for them without being tiresome? I'm, I get tired, I, I get exhausted and I just give up and I was like, you know what, screw this, I'm just gonna find another place for me to, to land. Um, and I believe that I'm not the only person who is here who has that experience. I'm pretty sure in your own identities, everyone has felt like that one way or another. It's not just about race or sexual orientation or religion or gender. Uh, we all feel that and I think we have to be aware of where we have felt that. So what are some of your comments about that? Um, prior to me coming here, I was a faculty member for about 15 years and uh, that I, I can't even tell you the countless amount of panels I was on about diversifying faculty. And it wasn't just about bringing them in, it's recruiting and retaining, right? And how do we do that? And I'm smiling so much because I feel you're exhausted. And I think it's really important, first of all, for the larger party, larger members of the party, of this party, to recognize how heavy this is for those of us who are not typical. Um, and I say that very consciously, that many of us who are doing this recognize that we are, like you said, you can count. And this is exhausting. And it takes a lot. And we are not just like everybody else. I, I remember a faculty member saying to me, who's a white male, he's like, Lisa, you and I are exactly alike because we each teach five classes. And I'm like, no, we're not. You're not asked to be on every committee. You are not, you don't have students driving an hour to have your class because you're the only black professor they'll ever have. No, we, we do not have that. You don't deal with the issues that I deal with. And so in terms of this party, it's part of that retaining us is making sure one, you don't burn us out, right? <laughs> asking us to be on multiple things, multiple spaces, because we're the only one. Um, and part of to solve that is you have to bring more people in. Uh, a real answer to your question, I think, is this is where using our knowledge and our experiences become important. So ideally, what I'd love to see, for example, is a forum where people like ourselves get to speak to the party about exactly what you're talking about. Like, we could probably make a list of the things that you're tired of hearing, right? Like, you know what they are. It's like, oh, here we go again. Well, if we could put that together and then share that with the larger organization and say, because 
a lot of times people aren't even aware. It's like, oh, I didn't realize that. Like, what are the things basically that would allow us to stay? Ask us, what is it that makes us feel like we want to bounce? And I can tell you, I, I'm on that line as well. I, I think I look and I go, you know how many other people look like me over on those other party? Man, I could just, oh, and, and I, I, I honestly am always like kind of 50-50 and I'm just like, oh, you know, and, and so that's the danger, right? If you're trying to bring people in, it's not just about that. It's how are you going to let us stay? And part of that is speaking to our issues. Uh, part of that is asking us about that, asking what we're experiencing. And when we tell you, don't get defensive about it, right? Because I will tell you that I do like this little test where I'll tell you something, maybe it's racist or sexist, and I wait for your response. And if I get, oh, they didn't mean it that way, or are you sure? No, that's not what it, you don't really know that person. They're really good. When I start hearing that in my head, I go, oh, okay. And I smile at you. And in my head, I'm like, never talk to them about that ever again. And that's how I know people who are like, well, I have a black friend and there's no racism. They've never told me anything. And I'm like, yep, I know, I know they haven't. It's like, okay. So what I'm saying is, um, you need to use our lenses and our experiences and give us a, a safer, I'm not gonna say safe, a safer environment by which we can express that. Some of us are vocal and willing to show our faces and if you did something like that, but anonymously, you know, is there a feedback mechanism where people could do like a survey monkey and talk about how they feel and send that information forward? Um, we have to have a plan for retaining. You're absolutely, and it comes down to the policies. And I, I personally think, because at the end of the day, a political party for me is representing how I want to see the world and what currently the world is like and my views and visions. So what the, the policies and how they address the issues, both generally and specific to what's important to me, those are the things that matter. So I would, I would love if, you and a few of us could get together and, you know, be able to have that conversation with people who'd be willing, honestly, to listen to what we have to say and come up with the answers to that. I don't think they have the answer about how to keep us, is what I'm trying to say. We have, we have some of that answer and that knowledge, and we can share that. Now, whether or not the party is going to take what we say and do it, that's a different question. And how they choose to implement what we say is going to determine whether or not we stay or we go. Question that people from the various parts of BC who are really interested in kind of making something happen, you all need to start having those conversations with each other about what that's going to look like. Um, and they're very specific things that can happen, right? Uh, translating stuff into languages that people understand. That's gonna be key, especially if you're on the mainland and, and so forth. Um, being able to get, identify key figures in the various groups that you want to bring in to begin to have relationship and conversation with that person to see how you can get, and I saw somebody say, we have to do our own work. You do. And it's, it's gonna take time to do that. And, Key is building relationships.